I've got my eye of terror on you. This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show. My name is Nathan Stone, and I will be your host today. We are getting in the summer spirit at the War Games Orchard, because today we're going to continue our look at the Golden Age of Games Workshop summer campaigns. Today is all about the Eye of Terror, 2003's galaxy-smashing summer campaign that pitted the forces of Abaddon the Despoiler against the Imperium at the Cadian Gate. Before we get into that, let's talk news and hobby. Guys and gals, I have a problem, and I need to be honest about my problem, and tell you that this is a cry for help. I never finish anything, and I hate it. I hate that I never finish anything, because I'm so changeable. I just get an idea in my head, and I go with it, and I go hard into it, and then something else comes along and it steals my brain. I was I was getting better. I really was. I've relapsed now and it's just the worst. Let me set the stage for you, all right? And if you're a regular listener to this show, I think you'll know where I'm going with this. To start off the spring, I was hot and heavy on Gene Stealer Cults for second edition. I have some beautiful old guardsmen the metal second edition guardsman that I wanted to paint up in a funky black and kind of neon purple color scheme and have them be gene stealer cults and I could use them in second edition and maybe also in other games. And they were super cool. I got one squad done and I started doing some test models for my Mordians and things like that. And then I got distracted. And why did I get distracted? Well, I got distracted because my buddy Patrick who is a prime factor in distracting me from my ongoing projects. He was like, man, we should do some third edition. And I was like, oh, yeah, we should do some third edition. And we're talking about 40k here. I haven't quite taken that old hammer plunge yet into third edition fantasy, though one of these days it'll happen. And so I start working on some salamanders for third edition because I really had the Armageddon summer campaign on my mind. I'd recently done an episode on that, which is worth listening to if you enjoyed Games Workshop's summer campaigns of the early aughts. Also have done an Albion episode as well. This is actually the third of four that I am doing on the Golden Age summer campaigns. I do these salamanders and I get a tactical squad done. I get a captain done. I get an attack bike done. Everything's looking good. It's a nice paint scheme. It's pretty darn good, I think. It's a solid paint scheme. Space Marines are easy to paint, and that really helps. And then, and then I made a mistake because I did the episode with Scott and GJ on the themed list of 6th edition, and I should have known better. I really should have. This is on me. This is my fault. Uh, I got hooked because we were talking about it. And we're like, oh man, wouldn't it be cool to do a Storm of Chaos campaign. And of course it's cool. It's so cool. Storm of Chaos was awesome. And we will be doing that episode soon? 
to wrap up these summer campaign episodes. That one I'm going to need some help with, so I'll probably recruit Scott and GJ if they are free to help me with that episode, and it might even be a two-parter because Storm of Chaos was ridiculously big. Anyway, now I am working on stuff for this Storm of Chaos campaign that is over the summer, or we hope to do over the summer, and I have begun making Archaeon's Horde. The worst part of this, the worst part, is that I have models that I could use for Storm of Chaos that I don't have to do any hobbying on. I could keep working on my second edition 40k stuff or even my third edition 40k stuff, but I, I couldn't. I couldn't do that because my brain is broken and I have a beautiful Cult of Slanesh army. Well, not really, but I have a Demons of Slanesh army and a Dark Elf army. And if you make them kiss, they become a Cult of Slanesh army. And I could have. They're all painted. They're done. They're done. I didn't need to start doing this. And yet, here we are. So I have painted up most of a unit of Chaos Warriors with swords and shields. And I have made a bunch of movement trays, and I'm going to be building Archaeon's Horde. I should have the pictures of the Chaos Warriors up soon on the War Games Orchard, probably by the time you hear this or close to it. Those guys will be up. It's a unit of 16, sword and board. These are the Chaos Warriors that were released around the time of Storm of Chaos, so they are the... 6th to 8th edition Chaos Warriors, and I do have an army of Chaos Warriors for 5th edition, but I don't like to mix between those editions. I find it very jarring, and I usually prefer the 5th and 4th edition Hero Hammer aesthetic, but for this one, I wanted to be authentic to the time period, so I am going all 6th edition Chaos Minis for this one. It really just gave me an excuse to work on these Chaos Warriors. I've had them sitting in a box for so long, and now they get a little bit of love. But honestly, guys, I just, I never finish anything, and I swear to God, if there's another project that comes along between now and the end of summer, there's no hope for me. There's there's no hope. I'm just never going to finish it. And then I've got school in September, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to pick up a miniature for two years. I'm not sure how heavy the workload's going to be. This is my first world problems right here. Well, that's hobby. <laughs> News is pretty light for you this week. We continue to move forward in opening up in Nova Scotia, which is wonderful and lovely. Things are starting to get a little bit better. We're not far now from being able to have indoor gatherings. And once we have that, we can start doing our streaming again. We can start doing our battle reports on the YouTube channel. If you're ever looking for our YouTube channel, that is the War Games Orchard, just like the podcast. The last thing I will mention is that we have a fresh Patreon bonus episode. That bonus episode is all about the zombie pirates of the Vampire Coast. GJ and I sat down and went over a ridiculous army list, maybe one of the most ridiculous Warhammer fantasy army lists of all time. It is led by a horrendously insane vampire and is full of ballistic skill zero ranged units it is the ultimate in plan roll sixes it is a wonderfully funny army list with awesome items and some of the strongest theming you will find in this game if you'd like to join us on our patreon and check that one out it won't cost you much our patreon is non-tiered 
We just love having anyone join us on there. For a dollar a month, or as many dollars as you'd like to give us, you can access all of our bonus content, which is a fair bit at this point. We do one bonus episode a month, plus other things when I can think of them. And we really do appreciate having any support that you can give us. It's a huge help in paying for this podcast, and just makes us feel all warm and fuzzy inside. So thank you to our existing patrons, and for anyone interested, it's a very good value. Now let's jump in to the Eye of Terror. 2003. My nostalgia-addled brain is making me think that this was a good year. However, this was a year that I was in high school, so it probably wasn't that great. I remember when Eye of Terror came out. By this point, Warhammer fans kind of knew what to expect from our summer campaigns. We had had Armageddon in 2000, followed by Dark Shadows in 2001. And now in 2003, we got Eye of Terror. Eye of Terror was much bigger in scope than either of those two. Albion focused on the mythical island of Albion off of the coast of Britonia, a very condensed campaign that was all about a singular place in the Warhammer world. Armageddon was similar in 40k, except that it focused on a singular planet. Eye of Terror was the first campaign that really, really upped the stakes. This was Games Workshop saying, hey, this is going to matter. This is a big deal. Can Abaddon break through the Cadian Gate? And what will happen if he does? The galaxy's on the line. The future would show us that, in fact, none of those things were true. But for a time in 2003, this was a huge deal. And the implications of it could have been quite large for Warhammer 40,000. Along with support in White Dwarf and its own website, which is very much a rest in peace, Eye of Terror gave us one of the best supplements that we would receive in terms of a summer campaign. Both Albion and Armageddon had great campaign booklets, however, they were quite small. Armageddon in particular was just tiny, teeny, teeny, tiny, though very good for its small size. Eye of Terror, which was actually called Codex Eye of Terror, gave us something more akin to the codexes that we were used to at the time. This is the 3.5 era of Warhammer 40k. After the pamphlet codexes of the early years, when things started to get padded out again, things started to get bigger, the lore sections expanded, the ranges expanded, and 40k started to really hit its stride post-switchover from 2nd to 3rd. As far as 40k is concerned for summer campaigns and specialty supplements, Eye of Terror is the gold standard in my opinion. I don't think they ever did better than this. The book is split into three sections. First we get the lore section, then we get a little bit of a gallery with those nice colored pictures. And then finally, we will get into the lists themselves. With something as big as the Eye of Terror campaign, which not only focused on Abaddon's attack on Cadia, but also the surrounding sectors and planets, 
a lot gets glossed over or just is only explained in a paragraph or two talking about attacks on certain planets, that kind of thing. Cadia is the star of the show here. And this is a very character-driven campaign. A little bit like Armageddon in terms of they had Gazgul and Yarrick, and this has Abaddon and Creed and Aldrad Ulthran. But we also got some incredibly unique forces in this book that went on to have a much greater legacy than the plot of the book itself. A lot of these characters and units that were introduced here became mainstay in later editions, sometimes much later. Let's talk a little bit about the lore for this book. And this is more than I can get to in a single episode, unfortunately, but I will strive to give you a little bit of an overview here. We start off with the history of the Cadian Gate, and it talks about the Horus Heresy and the how the Traitor Legions were driven into the Eye of Terror after the end. This is important because, well, we need to know how the Traitor Legions got to where they are. They're prison slash home of the Eye of Terror and Cadia itself. Cadia is a fortress world, meaning that most of it is given over entirely to fortifications, to defenses, because it is at the very tip of the Eye of Terror. If you look at a map of the Eye of Terror, it looks like some kind of nebulous region of space in the shape of sort of a circle. It's not really an eye to look at it, but there is a big crack in it. And in that crack sits Cadia. Cadia messes with the warp energy that flows from the Eye of Terror. It dissipates it and allows ships to move into and out of the Eye of Terror. It is the easiest route. It is not the only route, but it is the safest route out of the Eye of Terror or into the Eye of Terror if you're crazy. The world of Cadia is covered in pylons. And not the traffic cone type of pylons, but giant black monoliths. Think of uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, except much, much larger. These things are the size of skyscrapers, and they dot the surface of Cadia. These pylons are of unknown origin, although we would find out much, much later in 7th edition that they are Necrontier in origin. But they have a calming effect on the warp. This makes Cadia one of the most strategically important planets in the entire Imperium, because it represents the first and best line of defense that the Imperium has against their arch-nemeses in the Traitor Legions, and for the Traitor Legions to launch another great war, like the Horus Heresy, they would need to break the Cadian Gate and break through. And this brings us to the plot of the book. Abaddon has created a monstrous host of the Servants of the Dark Gods, including the Traitor Legions and innumerable traitors and mutants among humanity and among the worlds of the Eye of Terror, and is flinging everything he's got against the Cadian Gate. In his way stands the forces of Cadia itself, as well as numerous Space Marine chapters 
the Eldar of Craftworld Ulthwi, and the other factions of Warhammer 40,000 generally find themselves on one side of this conflict or the other, depending on what suits their purposes. This all takes place in the waning years of Millennia 41, which is about the same time that the Armageddon campaign is going on. Games Workshop had this nasty habit of setting all of their galaxy-altering events kind of around the same time, and it made you wonder how chapters like the Ultramarines and Blood Angels that always seem to be in the middle of every conflict were still at all combat ready or able to actually get to all of these places at roughly the same time. So our story starts with raids against the listening stations, the outposts, and the worlds around Cadia. These are spread out over a number of years, and Abaddon takes his time to destroy enough of these stations so that he basically blinds Imperial forces as to what's coming. The other things that start happening are setup pieces for this invasion. There is the Curse of Unbelief, which is spread from diseased space hulks coming out of the Eye of Terror. And while the forces of the Space Marines and the Imperium destroyed many of these space hulks that had been vomited forth by the Eye of Terror, a lot of them slipped through and brought plague and death to worlds around the Cadian Gate. This plague ended up being known as the Plague of Unbelief or the Curse of Unbelief. And this was because of firebrand preachers claiming that the Emperor's wrath was descending on these worlds for their lack of faith in him. What was particularly sinister about this plague was that when you died, you came back as a zombie. You would rise from your grave and try and feed on the living. And the response from this from these worlds that were besieged by their own dead, was to double down on the faith thing, which meant that they were trying to stop and halt the plague by doing things like burning hospitals and regressing to even more superstition than is usual for the imperial citizenry. This, of course, only made things much, much worse. The Plague of Unbelief was fostered by none other than Typhus of the Death Guard, who had masterminded the whole thing. While this is going on, the Eldar start getting involved as well, because if anyone's going to see the signs of an impending galactic Armageddon, it is the Eldar, and especially the Eldar of Ulthwi, who live quite close to the Eye of Terror and have many seers that are big into fortune-telling and trying to keep themselves and their people alive. They start getting worried because Araman, the famed Thousand Sons sorcerer, has decided that this would be a great time to break into the Eldar's Black Library. The Black Library is kept in a dimension called the Webway. It is the old method in which the Eldar used to travel the galaxy. They still use it, but much of it is inaccessible or infested now by minions of the Dark Gods. And Araman has been searching for this library for a long time. 
It is the repository of all of the Eldar's some knowledge on chaos and the Dark Gods. That is something that he is very interested in getting his hands on. And in response to this, Eldrad Ulthran and the seers of Ulthwi decide that they need to take direct action in both stopping him and this coming conflict, as they know that if Abaddon breaks the Cadian Gate, things are going to get very bad for just about everybody in the galaxy. Ulthwi, of course, being a craft world, has a lot of resources at its disposal, but like any Eldar craft world, they have to marshal those resources very carefully because they are not a numerous people. They decide to use their famed Black Guardians, who are a more elite and martially disposed citizen soldiery than most craft worlds have access to, and break them into strike forces where they can mount hit-and-run attacks against the forces of chaos, and using kind of a scalpel approach to turn the war against Abaddon and his forces, basically applying their armies to the exact right place at the exact right time. Finally, once the Curse of Unbelief had taken hold in the sectors around Cadia, and even a little bit on Cadia itself, as we'll see, Abaddon launched his 13th Crusade. He's done 12 of these before, each one with a seemingly different objective. This one is number 13. And the opening action of the 13th Black Crusade wasn't the invasion itself. It wasn't Abaddon's war fleets popping out of the Eye of Terror. It was a betrayal on Cadia itself. And this is one of those moments in which Abaddon's plan kind of backfired by working. There were millions of guardsmen mustering on Cadia because everyone knew something was coming. Something big was about to come out of the Eye of Terror. They weren't exactly sure what, but Cadia desperately needed reinforcements. And they were mustering at landing fields on Cassir Tyrock. Many of the regiments had already assembled and then landed the Volscani cataphracts. The Volscani were some of the most hard-bitten and veteran fighters around the Cadian Gate. And the Volsiani unloaded their transports, and the high command was there to receive their salute. That's when the Volsiani revealed their true colors, that of the ruinous powers, and opened fire on the unshielded, unprotected command leviathan of the Cadian Command, destroying it, and then very quickly attacking the surrounding regiments. This was a suicide mission by the Volscani. They had no chance of defeating the Cadians there because there was so many. They were one regiment among many, many regiments. However, they had cut the head off of the Cadian High Command. This works out less well for them than you might think, because during this battle of Tyrock Fields, a man named Asurker E. Creed would take command of Cadian forces and become the Lord Castellan. And Creed is going to be a thorn in Abaddon's side 
for several editions after this. While this battle was going on, this sneak attack, one of the fortresses on Cadia, the commander started feeling sick. He bloated up and everyone realized, uh uh-oh, the Plague of Unbelief had come to Cadia. The Cadians reacted by sealing up his fortress and everything in it forever. In the aftermath of this brazen attack on Cadia itself and the Cadian command structure, the Imperium could no longer even pretend that something awful wasn't about to happen. Aserker Creed became the new Governor Primus, and he went on a spree of strengthening their defenses and stocking up on war materials, foods, water, anything that he could get his hands on, and sending pleas for aid in every which direction. This was an excellent idea, as many chapters of Space Marines responded, as well as Arms of the Administratum and the Imperial Navy, and they were about to need all of it. Now, Abaddon is a guy who likes to show off a bit. He's got a bit of a flair for the dramatic, and this is no exception. When the storm finally breaks, when he launches his actual attack on Cadia, he starts off by being a big dramatic guy, and he brings his biggest guns to bear. His biggest gun being the planet killer. Now, Creed had sent out strike forces of Kazarkin, which are the stormtroopers of Cadia, to be his eyes and ears beyond Cadia and further into the Eye of Terror. He had sent some of them to a planet called Earthwart. Earthwart was a world taken by chaos, and the Kazakhin were there, but they found nothing alive, just some plague zombies, that kind of thing. However, their ships in orbit reported numerous vessels approaching of unknown make, the Kazakhin fell back to their dropships, but it's too, it was too late at that time. The Imperial ships were already under attack from Chaos forces, and they had to disengage and flee back to Cadia. There was no escape for the Cadians stranded on Earthwort, as the planet killer broke from the larger Chaos fleet and approached them. Abaddon then, for seemingly reasons of only dramatic entrance, destroys Earthwart, despite having maybe a thousand or so Cadians on it, and he destroys it as a sacrifice to the Dark Gods. The death of Earthwart echoes through the warp and blows out encroaching warp storms, and every telepath in a thousand light years felt its death scream, so he just wants everyone to know that he's coming, and to do that, he blows up a planet. His ship is followed by the Plague Claw and the Terminus Est of the Death Guard under the command of Typhus, as well as two altered Blackstone Fortresses. The Blackstone Fortresses were ones that Abaddon won during the Gothic War, which the great spaceship combat game Battlefleet Gothic allows you to recreate. Blackstone Fortresses, also known as Talismans of Vol, are super weapons from a long-forgotten era that were said to be able to kill Sitan as well as destroy suns. 
so even more powerful and potent than Abaddon's planet killer. These things were followed by thousands of warships and transports ready to bring war on a massive scale to Cadia. The book then goes on to describe the planets around the Eye of Terror and the horrible things that are happening to them. This is a little bit like the Armageddon book, where these planets exist to kind of up the stakes for us, to show us how bad things are. For anyone who listened to the Armageddon episode, you'll remember that there was about two dozen planets that Gazgul invaded as well as Armageddon, and most of those planets fell in a matter of days or hours. This is somewhat similar, but it goes into a little bit more detail. Abaddon decides to destroy another planet on his way to Cadia, this one by means of Blackstone Fortress. Demos Binary was the planet, and the... Blackstone Fortress sent massive lightning arcs that raised the planet's surface bare, killing millions within hours. Why he just didn't do this to Cadia, I don't know, but apparently he wanted Cadia as his own. Maybe it's kind of a, a prestige thing, right? Like, I took this from you, as opposed to just, I just destroyed this. Of course, as anyone who is up on the modern-day 40k lore will know, in the redo of Eye of Terror called Gathering Storm that they did at the end of 7th edition, Abaddon just ends up crashing a Blackstone Fortress into Cadia in just a tremendous waste of resources. Honestly, I thought that was kind of a bad story. And this is why we talk about older stuff on the show. The book also describes the Imperial Navy's actions against the Chaos Fleet, mostly in delaying them and trying to buy Cadia more time. At the end of our description, the invasion of Cadia has begun. And we are now ready to fight it out for summer glory. At the very end of our lore section, it gives us a breakdown of the known forces that are involved in the, the war around Cadia. And it's a whole lot of forces. Mostly it just gives you names and gives you maybe some ideas if you think something sounds cool. The Mordant 303rd Acid Dogs Regiment is there. For, uh, the Necromunded 8th, the Spiders is around. A lot of stuff if you just want to do something fun and, and silly for a project. I always liked these dispositional things because it gave you a, a sense of just how big the war was. Looks like there's about 20 chapters of Space Marines involved. All of the Traitor Legions plus some of the Traitor Chapters that have come in the intervening millennia are around. It's really very cool. The next section is on collecting a campaign force. Now, this is an interesting section. It's our color section. It's our gallery. And it shows us a lot of examples of the forces that are around. So we see both things that are familiar, like a breakdown of Space Marine chapters, the likes of which we've seen in the Space Marine Codex and the Chaos Space Marine Legions. But then we also get awesome pictures of the specific campaign forces like the 13th Company, the Cadians, and the Lost and the Damned. A lot of this is really unique to this book. We also get the Ulth We Strike Force, and some conversion tips and things to build out your forces. What they did here was very clever in making these forces 
mixes of existing kits. So, for example, the mutants and the traders from the Lost in the Dam list can be made from bits from just all sorts of kits, as well as the Space Marines of the 13th Company of Space Wolves are a mix of Chaos Space Marine and Space Marine parts. A very clever way to give us new models without necessarily giving us new models. Speaking of new models, something interesting happened with this book, and I think it was a delay on Games Workshop's part. If you look at the artwork, the artwork of Cadians in particular, they are all of the plastic Cadian range that we should all be familiar with, the one that released in 2003 and is still used to this day, and in fact just got its very first upgrade kit in like a thousand years. But the gallery pictures, the actual color pictures in this book, are of the classic metal Cadians from 2nd edition. And this is really odd, because if you look at the White Dwarfs at the time, and we will towards the end of this episode, they had the new Cadians. So this book had to have been made quite a bit in advance, and they knew the Cadians were coming out, but they must not have had any studio-ready Cadians to paint up for this. Otherwise, I'm sure they would have put them in the book. It's just a neat little quirk of how the timing happened with this, but it is still interesting nonetheless. One of the things that I really like is in this section, we also get a map of the Eye of Terror that shows us some of the planets that were talked about in the description and gives us a little bit of an idea of these worlds and whether or not they're populated and what they do for the Imperium itself. One of the things I always liked about Imperial lore in 40k was that entire planets were given over to a specific thing. So an agricultural world just grows food. A mining world just mines. It's an interesting way to set up a galactic empire. Hugely inefficient and an easy chain to be broken. You know, if your agricultural world falls to the enemy, then millions or billions of people starve on other planets, but it fits that grim, dark aesthetic to a T. Once we get through our color photos, we get a little bit of rules on fighting in the Eye of Terror campaign, as well as where we can go to get the latest news and record our battles, which was eyeofterror.com. And, oh boy, I really wanted to go back in the Wayback Machine and take a look at this page and play around in it. Unfortunately, I forgot that the Eye of Terror campaign website was done entirely in Flash, and so has probably not worked now for years and years, but even if you go back in the Wayback Machine, you will not find anything useful there, unfortunately. It was a, a big disappointment, but they also note that you can play games in Battlefleet Gothic, Inquisitor, and Epic 40,000, and it also tells us our lists for this supplement. We have the Cadian Shock Troops, for which you will require Codex Imperial Guard, the Lost and the Damned, for which you will require Codex Chaos Space Marines, the Ulthwi Strike Force, which requires Codex Eldar, and the 13th Company, which requires both Codex Space Wolves, and Codex Space Marines. And now we can get in to the heart and soul of this book, our campaign factions. 
starting with the Space Wolves of the 13th Company. The legendary 13th Company of the Space Wolves disappeared 10,000 years ago, and the circumstances of that disappearance are the subject to numerous myths and legends. With the advent of the 13th Black Crusade, Abaddon has unleashed the hordes of the Eye of Terror upon mankind. Snapping at his heels come elements of the 13th Company, Warbands intent on fulfilling the task they were set ten millennia past by, legend states, the Primarch Lehman Russ himself. The 13th Company was an answer to a question that I think a lot of Space Wolf players had in the early years, in that we got to know what happened to this 13th Company that went into the Eye of Terror in the wake of the Horus Heresy. At this point in time, the lore around the 13th Company was not set in stone, and even in this book, it treats it as myth and legends, and we're not really sure if the 13th Company disappeared after the Battle of Prospero and following the Primarch Magnus into the Eye of Terror, or later after the Battle for Terra following Abaddon and the remnants of the traitor legions. I like that it's left open-ended like that. Gives it a sense of myth of being told from the standpoint of the 41st millennia, where so much of this information has just been entirely lost. I really liked the era of the Primarchs as an era of myth and legend, where no one was really sure what happened. I thought that was a really cool era. Unfortunately, Games Workshop realized at some point that they could just make all of the money in the world by telling that story in excruciating detail. So we have lost a lot of that fun ambiguity of that early era. The 13th Company Army list is quite a thing. It is small, but packs a punch. There's not a lot of units here. But what there is, is a very aggressive, in-your-face army. I think games with the 13th Company aren't going to last very long, one way or another. And a lot of things are going to die. There is going to be much violence when the 13th Company is around. Let's take a look at how it is set up. For your HQ choices, you could take a Wolf Lord, a Rune Priest, and or a Wolf Priest. The Rune Priest and the Wolf Priest are 0-1 to one choices. These are standard from your Space Wolf Codex, except with some options that are presented later on. In Elites, you have Wolfen Packs and Stormclaw Packs. Wolfen are the big star of this army. They are the altered brethren of the 13th Company who have succumbed to the curse of the Wolfen, turning them into Wolf Marines. Sort of like the Wolfman, but more marine. In troops, you have a single choice, the Grey Slayers pack. In fast attack, you have the Fenrisian Wolves and the Stormclaws Biker pack. And for heavy support, you have 13th Company Longfangs. That is your army. That is it. You will have no tanks. No tanks for you. No fancy stuff like land speeders, anything like that. This is what you got, a handful of units. And luckily, those units are pretty darn good. Now, a lot of what makes this army function is their special rules. They have a couple really good ones. 
They may not use the drop pod rule from Codex Space Marines. Instead, they use a separate set of rules. The first one being move through cover. This is an army-wide rule for the 13th Company. In this era, it meant that you could roll an extra d6 when you were moving through cover. Usually, you would roll 2d6, pick the highest. They would roll 3d6 and pick the highest. Anyone who is in Terminator armor did not get this ability. Though, since you have no actual Terminator squads, the only ones in Terminator armor are going to be characters and that kind of thing. The big one is Scouts. The Space Marines of the 13th Company are adept at catching the enemy unawares. To represent this, the entire army may always be deployed at the start of the battle, even in scenarios where you would normally be required to hold models in reserve. In addition, after both sides have deployed, the army may make a free move. This move happens before the first turn takes place, and before deciding who has the first turn. All normal movement rules apply. In this case, Wolfen do not move subject to their Animal Rage rule, and Rune Priests may not use the gate. And models in Terminator armor, again, do not get that free move. Neither do Stormclaw Biker Packs, due to the noise they make, in parentheses. This is a hugely beneficial rule. A free move before the battle begins for your ar whole army, or at least almost your full army, for an army without transports, this is hugely important. You need to be able to get to the opponent before you get blown to bits. Your models are very expensive. This rule is absolutely necessary for this infantry-based army. Now, in our army list section, of course, a lot of this is referencing Codex Space Wolves and Codex Space Marines, but you do get some interesting things. For example, in our Wolf Lord, you can have him bear the mark of the Wolfen. If you do this, Wolfen may be taken as troops instead of elites, and in this case, Grey Slayers are not available to the army. That is an interesting alternate list within this interesting alternate list. If you wanted to go all werewolves all the time, this was the way to do it. The Rune Priest didn't have any special changes to his stat line, but had an extra psychic power called the Gate, on a successful psychic test, the Rune Priest can use the power at the start of the movement phase. Instead of moving normally, the Rune Priest and one squad of Grey Slayers, Stormclaws, or Longfangs within six of him are removed from the table and then immediately placed anywhere on the tabletop using the Deep Strike rules. Again, another mobility trick for an army that needs mobility tricks. What these guys wouldn't give for a Rhino or two and this power replaces their normal Stormcaller power. And finally, the Wolf Priest got Wolfenkind. If a Wolf Priest joins a Wolfen pack, you may choose whether or not it is subject to the Animal Rage rule each turn, so long as the Wolf Priest is with the pack. If the pack moves due to Animal Rage rule, the Wolf Priest will move with them, but may not fire any weapons in the shooting phase, and a Wolf Priest may not take the mark of the Wolfen. This is the Black Rage all over again. You have the Chaplain to control the Animal Rage in the Wolfen like you would have the Chaplain to control the Black Rage in Blood Angel Space Marines. This is kind of a neat similarity between the two. Next we get into Elites, and this is where we get the Wolfen. They are scary. They are 24 points per model, and they do not have an average Space Marine stat line. These guys are Weapon Skill 5, Strength 5, Tough 4, 1 Wound, Initiative 5, 2 plus 1 attacks, 
leadership 10, and a 3-up save. You can take them in squads of 5 to 15. They are armed with their Savage Claws, which is counted as two close combat weapons, and that is the plus one you see in their profile above. And then let's talk about their Animal Rage special rule. We've heard about this one. At the beginning of the 13th Company movement phase, each Wolfen pack must advance a normal move of plus D6 towards the nearest enemy instead of moving normally. The extra D6 movement is not affected by difficult terrain. This is yet another movement trick for this army, and D6 plus 6, that's not too bad. No other character than a Wolf Priest may join a Wolfen pack, even if you have the Wolfen Lord. That only changes them to troops. He cannot actually join them, which is a weird little thing. I don't know if that was intended or not, but it is what it is. The other elite is the Stormclaws pack. The Stormclaws pack are the equivalent of the Bloodclaws, except that everyone in the 13th company are all veterans and not the new recruits, as there are no new recruits for the 13th company. These guys, you can take them in 6 to 10, and they are 21 points per model. They are basic space marines, but they have two attacks each and three for the wolf guard. They have a little bit more options than your normal blood claws. Two models in the unit may, be, may replace their close combat weapons with power fists or power weapons, and two of them can replace their bolt pistols with plasma pistols. The theme that we're seeing with this army is close combat prowess all the time. These guys are going to close with you scary fast for regular infantry models, and they're going to give you the business, and you will not like the business. Now we get to do troops. The Grey Slayers are the all-in-one, a little bit of everything unit. They number 6 to 10. They are also 21 points per model. They have the same stats as the Claws unit, where they have the extra bonus attack. These guys are your ranged support. They have a bolter and a close combat weapon, frag and crack grenades. Up to two models may be equipped with a flamer, melt-a-gun, or plasma gun. We, of course, have the choice for a wolf guard. One model may be upgraded to a standard bearer, straight out of fantasy, apparently, and given a wolf totem from the armory. Finally, they have the true grit special rule. They have the strength and skill to fire a bolter with one hand and may use the True Grit rule. The True Grit rule was incredibly cool, and it allowed you to use a bolter like a bolt pistol, so to gain that extra attack in close combat. These guys are just as good in close combat as the Stormclaws pack, except they have the added benefit of having bolters for that long-range fire support. Great troops, very costly at 21 points per model. Everything in this army is super costly. Except maybe our next stop, which is the Fenrisian Wolf Pack. The Fenrisian Wolves will cost you 10 points per model, though they're not terrible stats-wise at weapon skill 4, strength 4, toughness 4, 1 wound, initiative 4, 2 attacks, leadership 8, and a 6-up save. They are a cavalry unit. They must always charge and make a sweeping advance whenever possible. These guys are decent chaff, they are speedy quick, and they get your army special rule of that free move uh, before the first turn, so they can get up the table very, very quickly and get in people's way almost from the very start of the game. Then we have the Stormclaws Biker Pack. So these are your Bloodclaw Bikers, except, of course, better 
They get that toughness boost from having the bike, and they number three to five, and two models may have either special weapons or special close combat weapons. They have the special rule Skilled Riders, where they can re-roll failed difficult terrain tests, but must accept the result of the second roll. Finally, in heavy support, we have the 13th Company Longfang's Pack. These are the only Space Marines in this army that have one attack base. It is a pack leader plus two to four Longfangs. You could have quite a small unit here that's pretty easy to hide. And they have all of the options that you would expect of a Devastator squad. They also have the special rule Fire Control, which allows them to split their fire, which is a very powerful rule in this early edition. The 13th Company has a single piece of war gear called the Mark of the Wolfen. You can give it to a Wolfguard pack leader for 20 points, or 30 points for an independent character. The Mark of the Wolfen, as described in Codex Space Wolves, has a slightly different effect when applied to members of the 13th Company, as every Space Wolf of the company bears the curse, no matter how manifest it may be at any given time. Any Wolf Lord, Room Priest, or Wolfguard pack leader may take the mark, and that character benefits from an additional D3 attacks in close combat. The character and unit are assumed to automatically pass morale checks and will never fall back or become pinned and always hit and will be hit on the roll of 3 plus in close combat. So a real upside and a real downside there. D3 attacks is quite nice, especially on a hero. You can make good use of a couple of extra attacks on a wolf lord for sure. Always being hit on a 3 is a little bit dicey for me. But I think overall, if you're just making something to rip and tear, as the 13th Company is want to do, I could see a lot of people taking this choice. The 13th Company was a really fun little list. It actually got a couple of boxes released that were combination boxes of Chaos Space Marine and Space Wolf parts so that you could make these 13th Company Warriors that had scavenged their parts. The Wolfen came in boxes of five and were all metal. They had a really great look to them. They looked for all the world like proper movie werewolves. A real mix between man and wolf. And for the life of me, I think these guys were some of the coolest models that the campaign got. I would love to get my hands on some. I think this army list is really, really fun, and I'd love to play it. Wolfen, unfortunately, these original metal ones go for an absolutely insane price on the secondary market, so I doubt I will be getting them anytime soon. This campaign would be the only time that we would see the Wolfen before 7th edition when they made their dramatic return. And unfortunately, 7th edition brought with it some really crazy over-the-top Wolfen models. I think probably some of the worst modern Games Workshop models. Just bizarre poses, weird ice weaponry, and a little bit comic book? I don't know how to describe it. I'm sure you've seen them at some point or other. And if you haven't, I mean, count yourself lucky. These original Wolfen are much better looking. They're a lot more understated. They're not over-detailed, they're not crazy silly poses, they look savage and awesome. A great centerpiece unit for anyone who was putting this together. Next up, 
are the Cadian Shock Troops. The Imperial Guard contains countless regiments raised on innumerable worlds. Among these, several have achieved a glorious reputation in the Emperor's service. Few, if any, have been as loyal, resourceful, or courageous as the Cadian Shock Troop. Ever since the Horus Heresy, Cadia has guarded the entrance to the Eye of Terror, and as of consequence, the entire world is given over to mastering the art of battle and constructing weapons of war. In addition to guarding against chaos, Cadian regiments have fought in thousands of Imperial Crusades and have served all over the Imperium. Even on the distant worlds of the Eastern Fringe, there are colonies formed around veterans of mustered-out Cadian regiments. Such is their reputation that many other regiments emulate their equipment and tactical doctrines, although few can match their prowess. Cadian regiments campaigning away from Cadia for long periods will often fill their ranks with local recruits and may even include abhumans such as ogrins in their formations. Such regiments use the standard Codex Imperial Guard list. This list covers the regiments that have maintained their links with their homeworld. This is a really neat idea because when we think of Cadians, we think of Cadia and the Cadian Gate. But this little description lets us know that Cadia has kind of spread its seed across the Imperium and there's a lot of worlds who would have originally been Cadians. And for anyone who is sad that Cadia blew up in the current lore, that should help ease the pain a little bit that there is these descendants of Cadians all over the galaxy at this point. Cadians were always my favorite Imperial Guardsmen back in the day, in the 90s. I loved the original metal Cadians. I don't have a lot of time for the current plastic Cadians. This army bears a lot more resemblance to the main Imperial Guard list than the Space Wolf 13th Company does to the Space Wolf list. What this gives you is basically some special rules and a few special units to add into your army. The Cadians got the following. Iron Discipline. Cadian nobles are raised from birth to be officers. They have an air of confidence and authority that keeps Cadian regiments fighting to the last man. Any unit using the leadership characteristic of a Cadian officer, colonel, captain, or lieutenant, with the Iron Discipline ability for a morale or pinning test, ignores the minus one modifier for being under half strength and may regroup even if below half strength. Cadian officers may be given this ability for five points each. That was kind of neat. It almost turned them into mini space marines, and they shall know no fear type of deal. They have sanctioned psychers. Cadia is close to the Eye of Terror and has a high incidence of psychic ability. Some of these individuals exhibit enough control over their powers to provide support to the shock troops in battle. These sanctioned psychers will have one randomly determined power purchased from the list provided. Remember when selecting war gear that they are not officers. Sanctioned psychers would eventually become part of the standard guard list. In this era, they are purely for the Cadians and purely for this book. Next, we have the Kazarkin. Cadia maintains several military academies based on the model set by the Scala Progenium. Those are the guys who train stormtroopers for everyone else. Exceptional individuals trained at these establishments to the Imperial Stormtrooper standards as Kazarkin. Kazarkin squads are allocated to shock troop companies to provide an extra cutting edge in battle. See the army list summary and list entry for more details. This was just telling you that they had a special replacement for the normal stormtroopers in the Kazarkin, and we'll take a look at those in a moment. Sharpshooters. Cadians are formidable marksmen, having undergone military training from an early age. 
Any Cadian infantry model with a ballistic skill of 3 may make a single reroll of a shooting to hit roll of 1. No Cadian can miss that badly. The sharpshooter ability has no effect when firing plasma weapons, which few men survive using long enough to master, or sniper rifles, where the slightest inaccuracy ruins the shot. This ability costs 10 points for a single squad of any type. Youth Army Cadians are inducted into the military at an early age. Cadian armies may include Youth Army cadets. See the list entry below for more details, again just telling you about a special unit. The Cadian Pattern Sentinel is a regular sentinel armed with an autocannon instead of a multi-laser and costing 45 points. And finally, Cadian Weaponry Demolition Charges. Only one demolition charge can be used by a unit in any one turn. They have a range of 6 inches, and the attack is treated as an ordnance attack, except that the model using the charge can move in the turn he throws it. Place the ordnance blast marker, that's the big one, normally, and then roll to see if it scatters. Because of the short range, this can be very hazardous to the user. Demolition charges are one-shot weapons. Once a model has used a demolition charge and survived, replace it with the model armed with a lasgun or lasgun in close combat weapon. If such a substitute is not available, remove the model instead. And a demolition charge was range 6, strength 8, AP2 ordnance. Hugely dangerous to anyone throwing that. Alright, so now we get into the units themselves. The Sanctioned Psychers. You could take 0 to 5 of them, and each one would have to join a separate unit in the army. So these guys were not units of their own at this point. They were Weapon Skill 2, Ballistic Skill 2, Strength 3, Toughness 3, 1 Wound, Initiative 3, 1 Attack, Leadership 8, and a 5 plus save. They would have a random psychic power when you bought them. You would roll on a list with 6 possible choices. They had the always flavorful It's For Your Own Good special rule, which meant if a psyker suffered a Perils of the Warp attack while a commissar was in his unit, the commissar would immediately execute him to avoid being possessed. You would just remove the psyker as a casualty. And they were also advisors. If used, one sanctioned psyker must be allocated to the command HQ. Any others are allocated to the first platoon HQ squads. If all command and platoon HQs have a sanctioned psyker, then the remainder are individually assigned to infantry platoons, armored fist squads, and kazarkin squads. Basically gave you an order of operations for putting these guys in your units. The sanctioned psychic powers were a real mixed bag. You rolled a d6. On a 1, you got no usable power, which meant this guy was just completely a waste of points. Although I guess at 12 points, that's not the end of the world. On a 2, you got telepathic order, and it allowed you to extend the range of an officer's leadership radius to 18. On a 3, you got Psychic Ward, which allowed you to nullify enemy psychic powers, targeting the Psyker's unit on a 4+. On a 4, you got Lightning Arc, which was a range 24, strength 3, AP6, heavy D6 shooting attack. On a 5, you got Psychic Lash, which buffed the Sanctioned Psyker in close combat. He would get a bonus D3 attacks at strength 3, with any wounds ignoring armor saves, which is kind of interesting. Not likely to do much considering he's weapon skill 2, strength 3, but it would be really funny if he managed to take out a Chaos Terminator or something. Finally, on a 6, he got Machine Curse, 
and this could only be used if you were in close combat against an enemy vehicle. You would make a single attack against that vehicle. If a hit is scored, roll a d6. On a 1 to 3, the hit has no effect. On a 4 to 5, a glancing hit is caused. And a 6, a penetrating hit is inflicted on the vehicle. A bit of a Hail Mary, but also a kind of a fun one like Psychic Lash. These guys aren't particularly good. They had fun models for sure. And at 12 points, I could see throwing one or two in there just to see if you get something even a little bit useful. Telepathic Order is probably one of the best ones there. That extends your leadership range. Maybe Psychic Ward if you're against a very psychic-heavy army. But 3rd Edition was not very kind to its psychers. And this is a bit of evidence of that. Now let's move on to the Kazarkin Squad. These guys are the Stormtroopers. They are the elite of the Cadian military. And they are a troops unit, which is kind of cool. They are 10 points per model and 16 points for the sergeant. They are about what you'd expect, being threes across the board except for their ballistic skill of four and their save of four. They are armed with hell guns, which would later become hotshot las guns, and up to two of them may take special weapons, and they could have a chimera transport. These models were so good. They were incredible. They served duty as stormtroopers for a long time, basically becoming the default stormtroopers, which they weren't at this time. There was a different model range for that, who looked pretty good, but honestly, the Kazakhan fit in so well with the new Cadian aesthetic. I think 99% of players got these guys and used these guys as their stormtroopers right up until the whole changeover to Scions, which never looked quite as good as the Kazarkin did. The other troop's choice is the Youth Army Platoon. You would have 2-5 to five squads per platoon, and 40 points per squad plus weapons is what you were paying. This is our conscripts by any other name, are just as bad. They are basic humans with weapon skill 2, ballistic skill 2, leadership 5. They have las guns, and up to 1 per squad could have a special weapon either a flamer or a grenade launcher. And you could take a heavy weapon squad with them, which I believe is not something that you could do with later conscript squads. Finally, the Cadian supplement gives us a special character. Lord Castellan Asurker E. Creed. So we talked about Creed a little bit in the lore section, and here we are with him on the table. He actually has a buddy to accompany him, Color Sergeant Jaron Kell, who is his bodyguard slash voice on the battlefield. Creed himself is 125 points. He's weapon skill 4, ballistic skill 4, strength 3, toughness 3, 3 wounds, initiative 4, 3 attacks, leadership 10, with a 4 plus save. He has a trademark item, his pistols. He has a refractor field, carapace armor, his two matched hell pistols that fire as a single twin-linked hell pistol and count as an additional close combat weapon in close combat. His special rules are Iron Discipline, and he has Master Strategist. Where there is a choice of mission based on strategy rating, an army containing Creed may always choose the mission. Similarly, they may either choose to win the dice roll for choice of table edge, or request that the dice for the first turn are re-rolled. He is a support model extraordinaire. He basically sets up your guard army for success before the battle even begins. Also, he had a very fun model. 
Space Winston Churchill at his finest. Kel is free when you buy a Circer E Creed, and he has a little bit more impressive stats than the Castellan. He is Weapon Skill 5, Ballistic Skill 5, Strength 3, Tough 3, 3 Wounds, Initiative 4, 3 Attacks, Leadership 8, and a 4-up save. His war gear includes the Medallion Crimson, Carapace Armor, Regimental Banner, Power Fist, Power Sword, and his Regimental Banner is the only one allowed in the army. He also has Iron Discipline, and the Medallion Crimson that he has is awarded to men who have suffered the most horrific injuries and have not lost their faith in the Emperor or their will to fight on. It takes a lot to stop a man who has earned this decoration. The first time the bearer is wounded by an attack that causes instant death, he takes just a single wound instead. Instant death used to happen to you if you were hit by a weapon that was twice your toughness. So for Kel, anything strength 6 or over. Finally, he has the bodyguard rule. If within 2 inches of Creed, Kel may change places with him at the start of either player's assault phase. He will then fight Creed's opponent, and Creed will fight his, if any. If you ever want to do castling in 40k, this is how you do it. This Cadian list set a lot of the tone for the main Imperial Guard list going forward, which basically became the Cadian show after 3rd edition. So much of this would carry on from book to book. Creed very famously became a bit of a meme himself with his ability for a couple of editions to hide things like Bane Blades or Warlord Battle Titans and surprise his enemy with them. Next up, we have perhaps the most iconic army from this supplement. The one that is a modeler's dream and spawned an army in itself that just never quite lived up to how cool this first version was. I speak, of course, of the Lost and the Damned. The insane gods of chaos have many, many servants. Demons large and small, mortal slaves which inhabit the demons' worlds and give endless praise to their dark masters through toil, bloodshed, and sacrifice, and the chaos space marines, ever willful and ever the most favored. An army of the lost and the damned represents a combined force of chaos featuring all of these elements. Such forces will be commanded by a powerful chaos space marine, demonic princes or some other great demagogue, traitor or arch-heretic, who's caught the eye of the chaos powers. Their armies are often insane personal creations, pursuing a path of strategy and tactics which defies rational military explanation. Their followers may be disciplined and well-armed, backed with prodigious amounts of armor and firepower, or a teeming horde of primitively armed mutants and monsters and demons. The seemingly insane, unpredictable assaults of such chaos forces are a nightmare for strategic planners and lowly troopers alike. Here is the army list. In the HQ slot, you have an arch-heretic, counts as a chaos lieutenant slash sorcerer, chaos space marine aspiring champions, or greater demons, elites, big mutants, possessed, or demon packs, troops, traitors, mutants, including plague zombies, gibbering hordes, counts as nerglings, fast attack, chaos hounds, demonic beasts, traitor recon, sentinels, rough riders, or hellhounds, and in heavy support, the defiler, chaos spawn, traitor tank, a Lehman Rust battle tank or basilisk, and a maximum of one Traitor Recon or Tank unit may be chosen 
per troop's choice of traitors in the army. This is the Motley Horde. This is the weird, the wonderful, all of chaos come together to make something greater than the sum of its parts? I'm not 100% sure. But it is one of the most iconic armies of all of 3rd edition, and probably one that is most fondly remembered. The Lost and the Damned may also include the following allied units from Codex Chaos Space Marines. 0-1 HQ choice, 0-1 Elite choice, 0-2 Troops choices, and 0-1 Fast Attack choice. Allied units may not be used as compulsory choices on the Force Organization charts, and units with a Mark of Chaos are always Elite choices. These guys had some interesting special rules. They had a strategy rating special rule. The Lost and the Damned have a strategy rating equal to the role of a D3. That is not very high, by the way. They had icons and demons summoning. The Lost and the Damned often call forth demons onto the battlefield. All rules in Codex Chaos Space Marines apply to demons summoning by the Lost and the Damned. Traitor and mutant squads can be upgraded to include chaos icons to enable demon summoning. Agitators and bosses may not be demon vessels. Demon vessels were hosts to greater demons, which was the way you got them on the battlefield. The character would explode into the demon, killing himself in the process. This just tells you you can't do that with these guys. You'll have to have a Chaos Space Marine Aspiring Champion or something similar as the demon vessel. For veteran skills, only Chaos Space Marine units could have them. They had some new weapons called firearms. That's right, just firearms. These were range 24, strength 4, AP 6, rapid fire, gets hot. The strength 4 was quite nice. Gets hot on rapid fire kind of mediocre weapons is a bit of a pain. You are going to kill a lot of your units that are armed with these. For anyone not familiar with gets hot, on the roll of a 1... When you were shooting with a weapon that got hot, you would do an automatic wound to your model. And with the lack of armor in this army, you're probably just killing them straight out. It was the reason why Imperial Guardsmen with plasma guns didn't tend to have long lifespans, as anyone could just pick them up off the table. This also reintroduced us to the Heavy Stubber. Popular among the low-grade scum that make up the traitor hordes of the Chaos Legion, heavy stubbers are often stolen from planetary defense forces, armories, or crudely fabricated among the demon worlds of the Eye. It was range 36, strength 4, AP 6, heavy 3, or assault 3 if used by big mutants. Alright, let's jump into this army list. We get some neat stuff in here. Firstly, our HQ choice is the Chaos Space Marine Aspiring Champion at 27 points per model, this is the same Aspiring Champion that you would see leading squads in the Chaos Space Marine Codex, except here, well, they're leading your army. <laughs> they can be taken in numbers of 1 to 3 as a single choice, which is quite nice. Gives you the opportunity to spread some Leadership 10 throughout this otherwise leadership-lacking army. They had a lot of the options that you would expect from Codex Chaos Space Marines and made for a really interesting, if somewhat weak, HQ choice, as they are basically a sergeant, they've only got the one wound, they've got a couple of attacks. They are, for all intents and purposes, just a cheap and cheerful HQ choice for this army, but it fits so well. 
that most armies of the Lost and the Damned I saw used the Aspiring Champion as the HQ choice. In Elites, they had big mutants. These guys came in 3 to 10 for 25 points each. That would get you Weapon Skill 4, Ballistic Skill 2, Strength 6, Toughness 4, 3 Wounds, Initiative 3, 2 Attacks, Leadership 7, and a 5-up save on a 40mm base. They are the Ogryn equivalent for the Lost and the Damned, and they could do a little bit of work for you. They were armed with teeth, claws, and body weight, some large, blunt, and or sharp implements. You could give the squad firearms for 2 points per model, and up to two models in the squad could carry a flamer or a heavy stubber. They could be upgraded to have a scaly skin for a four plus saving throw and a minus one initiative, also for five points per model. They could be upgraded with a boss for an additional 30 points who had an extra attack and an extra point of leadership. These guys were the heavy hitters of the army. Then we get into troops. First up are our traitors. Traitors are our guardsmen who have seen the light and switched over to worshipping the true gods of the warp. They are 8 points per model. They have a basic human stat line except for leadership 6. You can take them in squads of 5 to 15 and they are armed with las guns and frag grenades. Their sergeant is called an agitator. He has an extra attack and an extra point of leadership. They have all of the options and actually a few more than a guard squad. Things like heavy stubbers, icon bearers, a few extra little chaos tricks up their sleeve. The agitator, if you took one, could purchase up to 15 points worth of weapon and war gear allowed by Codex Chaos Space Marines, but not marks, gifts, or other items. So you could do some interesting stuff there. They could buy a chimera or a rhino, which is kind of neat. Take you back to those days when the Imperial Guard used Rhino. And what made them 8 points per model is the special rule Infiltrate. And so they could work their way into a forward position before the battle and start from a more advantageous position. Then there was the Mutants. These guys are your Chaff and your Horde. You would take them in squads of 15 to 30. They were 6 points each. They were Weapon Skill 3, Ballistic Skill 2, Strength 3, Toughness 4, 1 Wound, Initiative 3, Attacks 1, Bracket 2, Leadership 7, and a 5-up save. You could take a boss for an extra 10 points. He had an extra wound and an extra attack and an extra leadership. They were armed with a variety of crude blades, spears, basic pistols, bombs, clubs, and pointed sticks, which counted as one, yes just one, in parentheses, close combat weapon, and frag grenades. They could replace their combat weapons with firearms for free, as well as having some limited options based around taking things like icon bearers and heavy stubbers, though they could get crack grenades if you wanted them a little bit better equipped. The mutant boss could do the same thing as the agitator for the traitors, where he could take 15 points worth of weaponry and war gear in Codex Chaos Space Marines. Their big thing was the rule Blessings of the Gods. They already counted as having the Demonic Resilience plus one toughness and Demonic Mutations plus one attacks, which were the two parentheses toughness and attacks in the profile. You could also give them one of the following. You could give them Bloated at three points per model, which increased their armor save to four plus, Burly, Brawny, or Goat-Headed, 
at three points per model, which gave them demonic strength, which would make them strength four, tough four. Horrifying, hypnotic, or brightly colored at two points, which would have been minus one leadership to enemy and assaults. Or finally, leaping, floating, or winged. Plus six points per model, count as demonic speed, move as cavalry. There was a lot that you could do with these guys. They were a real toolbox and had options to get you there quick or hit hard or just not die as quickly as you want them to. At toughness four with a four plus save, a unit of 30 of these guys would have been very hard to pick up in third edition. In fast attack, we have chaos hounds at 10 points per model. These are almost identical to the Fenrisian Wolves earlier, having Weapon Skill 4, Strength 4, Tough 4, 1 Wound, Initiative 4, 2 Attacks, Leadership 8, and a 6 plus save. And they come in squads of 5 to 10, and they are Cavalry. Lastly, and one that you couldn't not have in this army, the Chaos Spawn at 20 points per model. These guys weren't too bad in 3rd edition. They came in squads of 3 to 5. They were Weapon Skill 3, Ballistic Skill 0, Strength 5, Tough 5, 2 Wounds, Initiative 3, D6 Attacks, Leadership 9, and a 3-up save. They had the special rule Random Attacks, Fearless, and Insanely Stupid. Insanely Stupid made you take a Leadership test at the start of the Chaos player's turn, and if the test was failed, the spawn just sit there the whole round. This army is a modeler's dream. If you want to include things from Imperial Guard, you can. Chaos Space Marines, you can. Demons, you can. It's all there. What's in this book is just the things that were added that aren't existing units. So it's so easy to make wonderful fun lists that are either a lot of Chaos Space Marines with some of these traitors in support, or very demonic, or just hordes and hordes of mutants and other scum with Imperial Guard tanks. It's whatever you want it to be. It is a beautiful, beautiful army. The packs that they had for this army that were released, and they were released in kind of bags. <laughs> Remember these bags at Games Workshop? that were a mix of sprues with orcs, chaos sprues, and imperial guard sprues. I think maybe also the old zombies as well. And you could just put them together in any number of ways to just make the weirdest things that you could imagine to make these traitors and mutants. It was perhaps the greatest army for modeling that has ever existed for Games Workshop. Now we're in the home stretch. This is the Ulthwi Strike Force, and it is the final of our campaign armies. At the end of the 41st millennia, the runic readings of the Farseers were brimming with dire portents. Eldrad Ulthran's worst suspicions were confirmed when Mog and Ra strode through the Craftworld's main webway portal, accompanied by a massive bodyguard of Dark Reapers. The presence of the Phoenix Lord on Ulthwi affirmed the fact that the Craftworld was in great peril. Before the hour was out, the Seer Council and Mog and Ra began a council of war. Behind the closed doors of the spirit chambers, the Far Seers vainly probed the skeins of probability for a safe path through the coming storm. The sheer scale of the coming conflict was terrifying. 
The forces of the Mong Kai and the minions of Chaos outnumbered the Eldar by millions to one. There was only one way Eldrad could feasibly alter the course of fate in so many theatres, of such an apocalyptic war. Whilst the Avatar of Ulthwi was awoken, and the Spear of Cain assembled to march with him to war, Eldrad fragmented his consciousness, storing a piece of his psyche in hundreds of sacred waystones. Mogan Ra assembled the Black Guardians of Ulthwi, dividing them into small strike forces capable of traveling the convoluted labyrinth of the webway. With the leader of each detachment carrying the sacred waystone, Eldrad could dispense his consciousness across the entire sector, guiding each strike force through the webway to the heart of each battle at exactly the right time and location. Mogan Ra's Dark Reaper bodyguard added to the strength of the Black Guardians in each strike force, and every member of the Craftworld who could don the Mask of the Warlock did so, to better lead their brethren. When the storm broke, Ulthwi was ready to strike like the lightning. This is a, a neat little take on the Craftworld Eldar book, and specifically the Ulthwi force that was already a thing at this point. This changes it, and these guys are very tricksy, but have some real downsides to them. The Ulthwi Strike Force has very important special rules. The first one being Webway Strike. At least half the units rounding up in any Ulthwi Strike Force must be kept in reserve and enter play through a Wraith Gate, as described below, regardless of mission. These units must be noted down before deployment, regardless of the mission being played. Any unit that carries a Wraith Gate automatically begins the table following the usual deployment rules. Ulthwi Strike Force troops that are falling back must do so towards the nearest Wraith Gate if one has been placed. If they are unable to do so, they will fall back as specified in the mission. If a model from a unit that is falling back passes through the Wraith Gate, the entire unit is removed from play as they have left the table. If the only model left on the table carrying a Wraith Gate is destroyed, the Wraith Gate is placed with the central hole over the spot where the model died. Tactical Withdrawal the highly disciplined Black Guardian squads that comprise an Ulthwi strike force know full well that a tactical retreat to preserve their strength is often their only option, and will make a fighting withdrawal to the webway rather than endanger their craft world by dying where they stand. Black Guardians, including jet bikes and support weapons that fall back due to casualties inflicted, will not rally and must continue to fall back even if above half strength. Any squad that is removed from play in this way will still above half strength only counts for half the unit's victory points. This is a very tough rule for Ulthwi. The fact that you can fail a single morale check and then that unit is just leaving and won't come back and cannot be rallied, doesn't matter if they're above half strength or not, that is a serious downside. Light Infantry Ulthwi Strike Force cannot include any vehicles other than Vipers and Warwalkers, as all other Eldar vehicles are too large to maneuver through the delicate capillaries of the webway without causing catastrophic damage. Finally, Guardians of Ulthwi. Due to the comparative rarity of Aspect Warriors on the Ulthwi craft world, only one squad of Aspect Warriors can be included in each force. Dark Reapers do not count towards this limit. Note that the special character Mog and Ra may be taken without your opponent's consent. You used to have to ask before you could take special characters. Not for Morgan Ra, he was just part of this. Alright, then we're on to their armory. The Wraithgate is 50 points, and it is kind of the theme of this army. You could activate it in the shooting phase instead of shooting, 
and you would place a spare blast marker in contact with the model when it activates the Wraith Gate, and then from then on, Strike Force units entering play as reserves enter play from the Wraith Gate instead of on the table edge. This gave you some real flexibility as to where you wanted your reserve to come in from, and since the whole theme of this army is survivability and keeping their numbers high, you really want to have a good place for putting down the Wraith Gates. This army is so thematic, but boy, it seems like a tough one to play. Next up was the Waystones. So these were the things that hold the consciousness of Eldrad Ulthran, or the split consciousness, I should say. They are 25 points. You can only have one per army. It allowed you to reroll one reserve roll per turn. Another very important thing for this army was actually getting your reserves in. This wasn't guaranteed in 3rd edition, so a very, very important item to have. One that I think you're going to take every single time, just like the Wraith Gate. It had the bonus of providing you a free cast of the psychic power Eldritch Storm once per game, which is kind of neat. And finally, they had the psychic power Augment, which was a psychic power that you cast on another Psyker to make them better at casting psychic powers. It was specific to this book and would double the range of the second psychic power, the one that you had augmented. The Ulthui Strike Force army was limited. You could take the following things for HQ. 0 to 1 Spear of Cain or 0 to 1 Seer Council. Elites, Dire Avengers, Howling Banshees, Fire Dragons, Striking Scorpions or Rangers. The Aspect Warriors were limited to one each. Troops, Black Guardian Storm Squad or Black Guardian Defender Squad. Fast Attack. Black Guardian Jetbike Squad, Viper Squad, or Swooping Hawks, again limited to one, and Heavy Support, Black Guardian Warwalker Squadron, Black Guardian Support Weapon Battery, or Dark Reapers. Of all of these, the most interesting is the Spear of Cain in the HQ choice. You may be familiar with the Court of the Young King. It's especially popular amongst Biotan players and armies, and it's where you have one exarch of each aspect accompanying the avatar of Cain in a whirlwind of murder. The Spear of Cain was like that, but with a bit of an Ulthwi twist. It was the avatar and warlocks. Two to five warlocks. And this is a really neat unit that we just don't see anywhere else. We'll never see this unit again. I don't know how well this would have worked. The Warlocks don't really have anything special to make them that great in close combat. They do have some equipment like Singing Spears or Witch Blades, which were quite decent, though they're not quite Exarch level as far as close combat prowess goes. I do love the aesthetics of this squad, though. Like five Warlocks surrounding an Avatar of Cain is really, really neat. And honestly, the whole squad isn't all that expensive. The Warlocks are 11 points each. The Avatar is only 80 points. You could have a lot of fun with it. If you're taking an Ulthui Strike Force, why not try it out? You could, of course, take the Seer Council, which is the classic Ulthui, Farseer, and Warlocks together. The Seer Council consisted of two Farseers and three Warlocks. And you're probably going to end up spending more points on these guys than you will on the Spear of Cain. I would be probably taking both if I could for this. And otherwise, most of the Ulthwi list is pretty standard. 
We have our limitations, but otherwise this is all from Codex Eldar. The Black Guardians, which is the specialty for Ulthwi. These guys are guardians with either Ballistic Skill 4, if they're the defenders with their Shuriken Catapults, or Weapon Skill 4, if they're the Storm Squads with their pistols and close combat weapons. The Jet Bike Squad had Ballistic Skill 4, as did the Viper Squad and the Warwalker Squad. And the support weapon battery. Each of these were just a little bit more expensive than their base units because they had to pay for that Ballistic Skill 4. It did, however, make up a lot of the ground that you lost by being so limited in your Aspect Warriors. I don't know if it made up for not being able to take anything bigger than a Viper as far as vehicles go. If you wanted a theme list for Eye of Terror that I think is a little bit more hard mode, I think this is what you want to take. Because it's so limited, and because it is so fragile. That does it for our look at the forces of the Eye of Terror campaign. These lingered, I think, long in the memory of players, as well as Games Workshop. So many of these armies went on to either be the basis for other armies or would come back in the form of units so much later on. For example, the Space Wolf 13th Company would make a return in 7th edition with the addition of the Wolfen to the Space Wolf main list. The Cadians would become basically the standard for Imperial Guard for the next several editions and you could argue are to this very day. The Lost and the Damned turned into renegades and heretics later on, and a lot of the ideas from this supplement were used to make that army list, which is now dearly departed. I know a lot of players, myself included, lamented when Games Workshop abandoned that army. Finally, the Ulthwi Strike Force has sort of stuck around, at least in spirit if not necessarily in rules. It's never been this limited again, but the war gear choices would stick around. The idea of the Wraith Gate has become its own model now. And these armies, whether effective or not on the tabletop, seem to have really stuck in the minds of the designers as well as the fans. And that's something cool to see because now I want to talk about the legacy of this book and the lack of it the eye of terror campaign was ignored almost from exactly when it ended games workshop never did anything with the results i think partially because it was such an overwhelming victory for the imperium and that didn't really gel with the way they wanted to take the overarching story of 40k they wanted to expand the narrative very clearly, but they weren't prepared when the air quotes good guys won, and won pretty hard. But they should have seen that coming. Warhammer 40,000 has a big problem, and it's had this problem for decades and decades, where a majority of the player base is playing a single faction, and that faction is Space Marines. And even then... If you weren't playing Space Marines, you might be playing one of the other Imperial factions that was adding to the tally for the good guys. They treated this campaign like there was an equal split. 
And this was their problem in Armageddon for sure as well, perhaps even more so than in Eye of Terror, but there just isn't enough players on the chaos side or playing the quote-unquote evil factions to make this a campaign that could be fought fairly. So what we ended up with was a wrap-up to this campaign that kind of just brushed it to the side and then didn't really mention it again. There was so much that we wouldn't see for years and years after this campaign, and the lore itself was never really expanded to be a post-Eye of Terror lore for 40k. It was rolled back. And certain things like Eldrad Ulthran entering a Blackstone Fortress and his spirit going into it and then him kind of being dead to the 40k universe was retconned and not really mentioned past that point. He kept going on doing his shenanigans and we just all had to kind of ignore it because Games Workshop ignored it. And it's a real shame. And I think this campaign, more than any others, was the beginning of the end for the golden age of Games Workshop's summer campaigns. We would still get one more in Storm of Chaos, arguably the best of all time, but that would have been already in the works by the time the whole snafu with Eye of Terror happened and Games Workshop didn't get the results they were looking for. They also wouldn't get the results they were looking for in Storm of Chaos, where, again, the good guys, the defenders, easily won. It wasn't really close, and Games Workshop kind of had to keep fudging it to move Archeon's forces closer and closer to Middenheim, because they were just losing, I think, something like 66 to 33%. It was not at all what I think the company was hoping for. It's a shame because I really believe that with a little bit more tweaking, if they had thought about how they were weighting their results, they could have avoided having these outcomes that seemingly were predetermined by the numbers of players and the factions that the players chose. But it wasn't to be, and Eye of Terror remains, to this day, a bit of a curio of 3rd edition. Massively fun for those who played in it, and for those who remember it and had those armies, but one without a real legacy in modern 40k. The best that I can say for it was that it did birth a lot of ideas that went into modern day factions and that are still being played and enjoyed by gamers today. Unfortunately, that will have to be it. Before we go, I should mention that Eye of Terror got a lot of great White Dwarf support, including another mega battle that I think you guys would get a lot of enjoyment out of rereading, much like in our Armageddon episode where there was a multiplayer battle played on many boards that all affected each other and affected the final outcome, the battle for the Basilica, starting in White Dwarf 283 and wrapping up in White Dwarf 284, gave us a great multi-battle report between some of the big names in the studio and weaves a great narrative. If you're feeling now like you've listened to this episode and you want to dive into some Eye of Terror content, that one was absolutely great. It's a really fun read. 
and showcases so many of the forces that we talked about today. They did a really good job with it. I love going back through those old White Dwarfs, and you'll find a lot of fun content for both 40k and fantasy in White Dwarf 283 for sure. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is going to do it for today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed this one. I've been having so much fun going back through these old summer campaigns. We've got one left to go, which I hope to get to soon, the Storm of Chaos, which is one that I think I'm probably going to do with GJ and Scott if I can, because it's just, it's so huge. It might even be a two-parter, I don't know. They really saved the most for last and probably the best for last as well. If you have a chance and you like old 40k, do check out Eye of Terror. It's a beautiful little thing with some incredible lore, some incredible forces, and I guarantee you will get all sorts of fun hobby ideas from it. Until next time, have a great week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the War Games Orchard. If you like the show, why not support us on Patreon? Our Patreon is where you will find our bonus content and is totally non-tiered, so for whatever donation you'd like, you can have access to all of our bonus content. If Patreon's not your thing, then consider giving us a 5-star rating on your podcast platform of choice and sharing this show with friends. If you'd like to get in touch with us, check out what's new with the War Games Orchard, or just say hello, you can find us on Facebook. Our community page is the Warhammer Orchard, and while you're there, you can follow our regular page, The Wargames Orchard. Outside of Facebook, you can get a hold of us by email at wargamesorchard at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs>